welcome to Cool with a K. I'm Kirsten Dreyer, and this is my co-host... Greg Spencer, always gastronomically gladdened to be here. (laughs) Amazing. And today, we are going to be talking about foods that used to be popular. But aren't anymore. Yeah, and that's like a really interesting thing to me because like I feel like cultures change their tastes throughout time and uh, and when you look at things that we used to eat that were in cultures like it's I just think it's really fascinating. So when I started doing the research for this, I found a whole bunch of things that like people people used to eat that used to be really really cool that have just completely fallen out of the cultural palette of our consciousness. Sounds interesting. Let's explore this. Absolutely. Okay. So the first one we have is coxcomb. Uh, Greg, are you familiar with what a coxcomb is? Coxcomb is the comb-like structure on the top of a rooster. Absolutely. So it's that like fleshy red growth on the top of the rooster's head. Usually it's an indicator of health, vitality, and sexual maturity. So if you have a rooster that has a less luxurious looking coxcomb, perhaps your rooster needs some TLC. So let it relax and chase waterfalls. Now, what's interesting about a coxcomb is that it's, it's quite laborious to prepare. So you have to boil it, skin it, boil it again, and then you have to cook the coxcomb on top of that to give it like some flavor. And back in the day, and I'm talking about like aristocratic 17th, 18th century, and even earlier before then, coxcombs were a sign of peak wealth and affluence in Europe. And this is primarily due to the cost associated with having poultry. So if, if, if someone were at a party, a fancy European party, and they were to hand you a bowl of coxcombs, combs. What they're really representing is look at all the chickens I have. I have so many chickens that I can cut the coxcombs off of all of them. And since chicken would have been a fairly high quality luxury meat item for the common person, uh, it might not have been uh, a big deal for the extremely aristocratic, but to uh, it, it still represents uh, a, a large portion of, of wealth more than it represented deliciousness because of its taste. So roosters were needed on farms to encourage hens to lay eggs. So killing a rooster represented an abundance of food availability. But to slaughter the rooster just to show off the comb was an even more ostentatious display of wealth. So to present a whole bowl of combs or to put like combs as a centerpiece on a food item would indicate a vast amount of wealth. So including the large amount of labor that goes into preparing them. Essentially, it was saying, not only am I super wealthy and can afford all the meat that I want, I also have the labor to spend on like the preparation of this piece of meat as well. Wow. All the rage at fancy European parties, it was refined and status affirming. This is the interesting thing. So we don't see coxcombs in our diet very much anymore, but they actually still are eaten, just not to the same variety. They no longer display a show of wealth as much as they display um, using all of the animal, more like a staple of a nose to tail eating. Just one question. Like Carmen Sandiego, where in the world? You can still find them in traditional European and Italian recipes today. Very cool. So let's come over the history. What's number two of the five foods that we no longer eat? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, combing through the history. I like that. <laughs> so on that note, we'll go to the uh, the next one. So tansy is, uh, if you've ever seen tansy, uh, it used to be a staple in um, a good housewife's garden. It is a Beatrix Potter style Victorian flowering weed, popular all the way back to Rome, and was long considered a garden staple for medicinal purposes. It used to be used as an abortant, um, but it also had um, a whole bunch of other, not necessarily proven, but considered benefits medicinally. It has a taste that's kind of cool and sweet, like peppermint, and it was popular in, in Europe for flavor. And although it is uh, sweet and, and quite tasty, we don't eat it anymore because in small doses, it's fine. But in anything more than a very small dose, it has negative toxic and lethal effects. So we don't eat it anymore because it's poison. 
it has um, effects that if you have just even more than a small dose of it, you can feel dizzy, lethargy, you can have mood swings, giddiness, headaches, basically a hangover. And in high doses, it can cause uh, delirium and death. Wow. It really reinforces that principle for me that a medicine is just the therapeutic dose of a drug. So it's similar to foxglove, which is digoxin, which is a cardiac drug where a little bit can fix your cardiac problems, but too much will kill you. Absolutely. You're completely right. So tansy's fallen out of favor largely because if you're growing it in your garden and you don't know the dosage, it's very easy to overdose by accident and have some really negative effects. The effects might not kill you, but they certainly won't make you have a good night. Um, our next piece moving forward is ambergris. Have you ever heard of ambergris? Have I heard of it? I'd amber agree. Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's a great Bob's Burgers episode about ambergris. <laughs> And I thought this was just the coolest thing. And it's it's a little, might be a little bit gross, but it's also super fascinating. So ambergris is formed from the waxy coating of the lining of the stomach of the sperm whale. Ambergris is created when that whale eats a squid. So to protect itself from the dangerous ink that resides inside the squid, the whale's stomach lining will coat the squid in this waxy substance. Once expelled by the whale, this hard, yellow, waxy substance can wash up on shore. So inside this waxy substance is a disintegrated squid, but the waxy substance itself is ambergris. Apparently it has, I've never experienced or smelled or seen or touched ambergris, but apparently it has this earthy, aromatic, intoxicating and indescribable scent that used to be uh, used heavily in perfumes. The best way I can describe it from my research is that it kind of think like truffles. It's sort of earthy and sweet, musty and alluring. And if it's, and it was also eaten, but it was very, very expensive. Famously, King Charles II of England was said to have his favorite food be ambergris and eggs. Wow, that's high taste. And if I serve it with cornmeal, it would be amber grits. <laughs> Otherwise, it's uh, if I try to think of another name for it, it would be a battle of amber wits. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And um, just for a fun fact, you can still find ambergris on shores today. I mean, sperm whales are still around. Squids are still around. This event is still happening. But if you do find ambergris, uh, best to not eat it. Who are you going to call? Call your local municipality and they will pick it up because uh, studying ambergris can actually provide us a great deal of information about the health of sperm whales in the uh, local area. It's whale science, yo. Our next thing is aspic. I hear it's a gelatinous number four on the five foods we no longer eat. <laughs> that is very, very true. So a lot of people are probably familiar with an aspic because it's essentially jello. But before you think of like delicious jello, aspics were actually savory. Like savory jello, for the vast majority of history, all the way back to the Middle Ages, serving an aspic was a dish to delight. This is mostly because the requirement for jello came from boiling uh, cow's feet or pig's feet or some other collagen rich substance like bone or skin. Due to the high price of meat for the majority of human history, serving aspic was beyond fancy. It was, again, a show of affluent wealth. And the idea carried on well into the 1950s as sweet jello and instant jello grew in popularity. It also was popular in um, wartime because jello can act as a preservative. When you're creating that gelatinous seal around things, it creates less ability for air, water, and, and microbacteria to get at the thing that you're actually preserving, which can make it last longer. So, all the way up into the 1950s, jello was pretty popular. And into the 1950s, savory jellos kind of fell out of fashion and sweet jellos moved into fashion. And as it became cheaper to produce with the idea of powdered gelatin, it also became more useful for. Uh, 
preservation. By the 1970s, though, jello and aspics were fading out of favor fast. And although there is like a jello belt in the USA where jello is still readily available and eaten pretty regularly, it has primarily become a relic of the past. Hmm. I really do associate it with being unwell and then you have jello to rehydrate you, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of water. Mm-hmm. I kind of think that there's a hierarchy of jello in my mind. Number one, orange, obviously the best. Number two is lime, but only if it's done right. Number three is red. And then number four would probably be dark red, but that's only because it's like the off red. And then you look at red, you're like, oh, I expect something like bright red, but it tastes like dark red. Usually raspberries or some like uh, cherries or something like that. But orange, yeah, number one. Would you agree with that? This is interesting because I never thought, I didn't eat a lot of jello growing up, but I was definitely a fan of lime jello. So I would say green is at the top. But the one thing that I, that I, I don't know if I can actually technically call it a jello, but chocolate pudding would have jello, gelatin in it. So I am a chocolate pudding girl all the way. I always like tapioca. <laughs> tapioca is delicious. I, I do enjoy that. So, Greg, what uh, what else do you have for us? If you're stuck, I have the fifth food we no longer eat, and that would be a trencher, originating from the old French to cut. So a trencher was a medieval flat, round bread that was used as a plate. Day-old bread, just to retain its shape because fresh bread is a lot more malleable and soft. So forget Tim Hortons, this was the original bread bowl. <laughs> Picture this. 
a man researching forgotten foods from days gone by. And as he finds his simple trencher as an easy addition to the podcast, he quickly discovers that down the rabbit hole lies information that would change his very view of gastronomic reality. Today, on Cruel with a K. When doing my research for this, that foods we no longer eat, the list is gastronomic. Haha. <laughs> I can make jokes about fondue, like chocolate fondue, cheese fondue, you know, oil fondue. I mean, when's the last time did you fondue? I would say at least 15 years for myself, but it was huge. Everybody had a set. And I can make a joke about 1980s quiche. Anyone that was raised in the 1980s always had this big casserole on the weekends. TV dinners themselves from the 1950s, which was a way for the Swanson's company to sell leftover Thanksgiving trimmings. They weren't doing it out of the goodness of their heart. It was a whole marketing ploy in order to get people to eat these leftovers they had no other way of selling. But the sixth food that we no longer eat is a conceptual mind bender. So, Kirsten, if you look at old Renaissance paintings, do you notice that some of the, the foods don't really look like what we think of as foods? Absolutely, I do. And you've seen quite a few Renaissance paintings in your time traveling around the world before the world kind of shut down, correct? That is true, and I think I know where you're going with this, and I am eager to hear more. Wispy watermelons, oddly colored carrots, funny-looking chickens, spindly wheat. How foods with the same names is selectively cultivated and changed throughout history. So let's look at those specific ones. Wheat, watermelons, chickens, and carrots, and how they changed through time. And the banana. So buckle up, because this segment is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> so let's start with uh, ancient wheat. The wheat we use in uh, kitchens is pretty refined. Spelt, you got white flour, you got gluten-free flour. What's uh, the most common flour in your kitchen? Uh, well, currently, because uh, there was recently a shortage on flour in my neighborhood, I was able to get my hands on the only kind of flour that was available, which was an industrial-sized sack, like a 25, like a 25-kilogram sack of white flour. So that's what we are currently working with in this household. The best kind of flour. Lots. <laughs> Wheat uh, originates from wild grass. So all the wheat that we have currently, it all comes from this one or two strains of original wild grass that has been cultivated from 12,000 years ago. And what we currently use in our cakes and breads and pizzas is a lineage of selected farming practices and modern genetic research. Stew on that and bake that idea. That is, that's actually really, really cool. I had, I actually had no idea. I did know, however, that sticky rice comes from one genetic mutation that occurred once that farmers liked and continued to breed it. We have sticky rice because of one genetic mutation that occurred one time. Wow. Imagine sushi without sticky rice. It's the, the core of it. It would just be falling apart all the time in the world without sticky rice. That would make me sad. <laughs> from the main course of rice, rice, maybe to watermelons. There's a long road for this bitter green fruit to become the king of summertime refreshment. There's evidence of Egyptians farming watermelon 4,000 years ago, but it originates from northern Africa with watermelon seeds found in Libya dating back 5,000 years ago. Why the popularity? If it was kept in a cool shaded area, a watermelon could stay edible for weeks because it's an organic storehouse for water. It's also interesting that the watermelon gene for red coloration is also linked to the sugar gene content. So watermelons that are naturally redder are sweeter. So people cultivated it for fuller, meatier, sweeter watermelons. And here's a question. How do you pick the perfect watermelon? Mm. Well, I look for a watermelon and I tap it. What do you do? That's exactly what I do as well. So it's percussion because there's a resonance with things that are more hollow. They sound like they're echoing. But doing it by sight, you're looking for rounder watermelons, so more orangey and less white spots on them. And you're also looking for a darker, greener skin with larger webbing on it. And that all means it's a much sweeter watermelon. I also have to say that with the weather getting warmer, you are making me crave watermelons so bad. 
Oh, King of Summertime. And they say if you put a sprinkle of salt and you could fry it on a barbecue. I've never tried that myself, but I've seen it on Pinterest. That sounds delicious. And my grandfather used to eat watermelon with salt. He said it made it sweeter. Granddad knew where it was at. There's actually a science behind it. So sodium chloride or table salt, in low amounts, it reduces bitterness and therefore enhances sweetness. In high amounts, though, it suppresses sweetness and increases the savory flavoring or umami in food. The contrast, because human palates tend to like contrast. Switching to the contrast of chickens, mm -hmm. from modern day chickens to, let's say, medieval chickens, the big change didn't really come about as quickly as 100 years ago. So up until the 1920s, chickens and eggs were a rare delicacy. It wasn't really until the 1950s with an increase in large-scale chicken farming and industrialization of the cleaning process, and of course, home refrigeration, did you see this increase in chickens being eaten by everyday people. What is dinner? Dinner is fowl. <laughs> the average people could eat fowl on a regular basis. And with this demanded raise, the market had a need, so chickens are currently twice as big as they were in the 1950s. There's two reasons for this. They use specifically larger breeds of chickens, and they feed them higher amounts of feed. So we're getting really hardy chickens. They're uh, meatier. That's correct. They want a chicken that's an absolute unit, <laughs> to use the uh, nomenclature of our times. Are you chicken? Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Sorry, I've lost track of thought. Oh, carrots. Oh, carrots. Carrots before the 1600s, the common color of a carrot was either purple or white. Orange carrots are a result of William of Orange, a Dutch prince who brought the Netherlands independence from Spain. And like every Euro cup knows, the Dutch propagate all things orange as support. Um, as well, carrots that are specifically bred for sweetness and root quality are both found in orange carrots. Here's a question. In medieval times, why were beet pies and uh, carrot cake so popular? Are you a fan of carrot cake? I actually love carrot cake. And I'm... I, I have so gritty. It's gritty like life. Life is gritty enough already. Oh, man. No, I love me some carrot cake. Um, can I make a... Can I hazard a guess as to why they were so popular? That because... They are root vegetables, and root vegetables tend to have a high, uh, a high sugar content. And sugar would have been extremely hard to get a hold of in the Middle Ages. I'm going to say that they're probably the sweetest things that peasants had access to. That is 100% correct. Woo. 10 points for Gryffindor. So switching gears for a sec to a fact that might not be on many people's radar, have you heard the saying that carrots give you good eyesight? I have, but isn't that a rumor? It is. It was propagated in the Second World War when the British had radar systems to help with flying missions at night. A mix of propaganda where they propagated this idea that since the pilots ate carrots, they had better night vision, or spill the fact that they had radar at the time. Oh, fascinating. But that is definitely a myth that persists today, because I grew up hearing that carrots were good for your eyesight. Me too, and they actually are, because they contain beta-carotene, which is very easy to remember since, you know, carotene. Have you noticed heirloom tomatoes, how different they are from regular tomatoes? Um, there are early recipes with tomatoes that recommend you burning the skin off of them. So that's because early heirloom tomatoes had very thick skins. That was a protective layer around the tomato. Tomatoes have long since been bred to have thinner skins that you can easily cut with a knife and that you don't have to burn off anymore. Uh, and that's not even in my notes. That's just a fun fact that I know about tomatoes. It's amazing. From tomatoes to bananas, bananas were first found in Papua New Guinea, and yes, bananas had seeds. It wasn't until the 1950s and the Gross Michael banana was widely used and exported on the market. That was until the Fire Nation attacked. And by that I mean several fungal diseases that essentially caused the Gross Michael banana to go extinct. So when people say the bananas are going extinct, they have. The Gross Michael banana is no longer found. 
And these days we use something called the Cavendish banana, which amongst other qualities is resistance to fungus. So it cannot get the same fungus that wiped out the gross Michael banana. So you know banana flavoring in medications. I've heard the phrase monkey farts thrown around quite a bit. And that flavoring is actually the gross Michael banana. And the reason it doesn't match our current palate is because we're used to the Cavendish banana. So old fashioned, old timey banana flavorings aren't the same banana, but slightly reminiscent of it. That is fascinating. I actually didn't know that. It's time for a Bananarama history mystery on Cool with a K. Right now. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on December 17th, 1936. A man enters a banana factory and turns on an electric fan, and the ensuing explosion rains bananas onto the city of Pittsburgh. Our suspect, banana gas. Ethylene gas combined with the gas heaters of the ripening room. So ethylene gas is produced as bananas ripen. Um, and don't worry about having bananas in your home or causing a banana explosion because it's very, very small amounts of ethylene gas that's released. The only thing that should worry are your apples, your melons, your broccoli, and cabbage because all those are hypersensitive to ambient ethylene. But on the flip side, if you want those to ripen a little faster, let's say you get some broccoli, it's pretty hard, it's pretty new, you leave it near your bananas and it will ripen overnight because of the ethylene gas. But if you want your bananas to ripen slower, you cover the stalk in plastic like some surround wrap or tinfoil because not as much is released into the ambient air, thereby ripening the bananas or anything else around it. That is an awesome food-saving tip. Well, why don't we eat hamburger anymore? It's gross. Coxcombs, they don't taste good. Tansy, it's poison. Jello, meh. There's a lot of reasons that our tastes have fallen out of favor, but I think what the most important thing is that as society advances and changes, our tastes naturally change with it. And as our technology is able to allow us to breed and reproduce food to uh, cater to our specific tastes, whether they be sweeter, meatier, less resistant to bacteria or temperatures, our palates change with the times. I have to say, like, this is probably one of my one of my most fun episodes so far to research because, like, I'm a fan of all things food. And, like, seeing the ways our cultural tastes have changed is pretty fantastic. And I might give Jello another shot. It might be prime time for lime time. Absolutely. I hope that we have fed your curiosity today. This is uh, Cool with a K. I'm Kirsten. I'm Greg. And we are signing off. And remember, no matter how hot it gets out there, stay cool. Spend your time, respect the law, commit no crime, and all the while you seem to find your way. Cash your chips, redeem the check, fill your coffers, invest in tech, and all the while you seem to find your way. Your cell phone hums, the morning comes, and battles lost, and battles won, the dream of battles yet to come, and when it's all just said and done, to relax and have some fun, my favorite podcast has begun. Cool with a K.